Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. A note to listeners. Today's episode contains graphic descriptions of violence. Crime pays. If you're a journalist, there is no beat more likely to get you an audience and a paycheck. Crime is trend-proof and recession-proof. Yes, true crime is freakishly popular right now, but it was never unpopular. Audiences have been showing up for gangster stories and murder stories and heist stories and scam stories steadily for at least 100 years, probably a lot longer. It's big business, which does not make crime reporting bad necessarily, Crime writing can, in fact, be the very best kind of journalism. Meticulously reported, deeply humanizing, beautifully written, rising sometimes to the stature of great literature, like, say, with Truman Capote. But crime writing can also be the very worst kind of journalism. Parasitic, manipulative, exploitative, turning other people's misery and tragedy into a product owned by the journalist. Like, say, with Truman Capote. Michael Lista 
writes about crime. He writes other things too, essays and poetry, but who reads poetry? People know Michael Lista because he writes about crime for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Slate, The Walrus, and Toronto Life. He's my guest today, and we're going to talk about what it means to live off of stories about the worst events in other people's lives. And our conversation is going to focus on one crime in particular, a crime that Michael writes about in his new book, The Human Scale. And that crime is the murder of Dr. Elena Frick. I asked Michael to briefly tell me the story of that crime. So before we begin, here's what happened. Maybe we'll start at the end. On Friday, December 2nd, 2016, a suitcase was found by the side of the Humber River in Kleinberg, uh, in Vaughan. And on the outside of it, it bore a little tag with the name of a town in Croatia. It happened to be the ancestral town of the Frick family. The suitcase belonged to Elena Frick, who was a beloved, well-respected family doctor. And inside the bag was Elena's body. She was wearing pajamas. Her hair had been cut off in ragged hacks. Uh, she was so unrecognizable, even though she had only been murdered less than 48 hours before. Her face was so unrecognizable that her mother, when asked to identify her, couldn't. And her father had to. Mohammed Shamji was Elena's husband. He was a neurosurgeon who specialized in spinal surgery, was really widely respected, um, grew up in a very well-respected family, sort of Ottawa gentry. And to the world, it looked like they had this idyllic marriage. They sort of presented themselves on social media as this like fun-loving, jet-setting couple with three beautiful children. When the police and family and friends came to Mohammed to ask what had happened to her, he said, well, Elena had left in, in the night with uh, her suitcase and her boyfriend. It turns out Elena had, had not left with her suitcase. Um, she had left in her suitcase. It wasn't a whodunit for very long. It turns out she was in the process of leaving Muhammad. She had um, retained a, a divorce lawyer and had told friends that she'd been severely abused by Muhammad, not just recently in the months leading up to her decision to divorce him, but essentially as soon as they met in 2003, Muhammad had been abusive, controlling, and violent with her. Two days after her body was found, police arrested then-Dr. Mohammed Chamji and charged him with her first-degree murder. It was her final attempt to leave him that brought him to kill her. He beat her to death and broke her neck in their home as their children sort of cowered and, and listened. Three years later, he pled guilty to uh, the second-degree murder of Elena Frick and um, is serving a life sentence with no chance of parole for 14 years. Michael Lista joins me in our Toronto studio in a moment. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Liz Jackman, Kevin Dreiger, Warren Nicholson, Laura Thrall, Sean Meads, Mae Forrester, Ella Wind, and Caroline. Hi, I'm Caroline, a technical writer from Waterloo, Ontario. I listen to Canada Land for their consistent and thoughtful reporting on everyday news and politics, as well as their programs that deep dive into fascinating topics like the white saviors and commons. You can really tell that everyone at Canada Land has a passion for their work and for the truth. I've got a paragraph you wrote here. I want you to read it for us. How the hell do people let us get away with it? 
We hover like vultures and call down like doves. We arrive as a kind of devilish apparition to the people who might be our sources, just as they're vanquished from their heaven. We're not their friends, their advocates, their pastors, or their shrinks. We're a ledger, a pen and a notebook, absorbing our subject's anguish without fear or favor. Our job is simply to listen, to watch, to write, to file on time, and then to invoice. Why the hell do they let us do it? <laughs> I don't know. On certain days, I'm still romantic about journalism, and I think it has you know, a, a public utility. I think like many crime reporters over the past few years, I've sort of questioned whether or not it's really good for anything, especially as the genre sort of um, exploded in popularity. To me, it's, it still matters to tell human stories humanely. I think there's just a sort of a sort of ontological good to it. But that's not why they let us do it. That's not why the, <laughs> that's not why the victims of crime no. talk to us. No. It's not for the greater good of humanity. No. You know, when you encounter a source for the first time, it sort of will go either one or two ways. Either, very understandably, they'll say, you know, I'm not ready to talk about this, about the worst thing that's happened to me and my family. But there's another sort of group of sources who really do want to be heard, who want to tell their story because people aren't listening or they feel like they've been misunderstood, misrepresented by another reporter. They just, they want someone to listen and to listen carefully. Do you think that they let us do it because they do think that we are their advocates or because they do think that we are their therapist or that we're going to give them a voice and tell their story and they mm -hmm. want, they want, we are the mechanism through which mm -hmm. they're going to get their version of it out. And if they think that, do we let them think that even though it's not true? I've thought a lot about this. It's, this is a hard question. You know, what I, what I try and do when I first speak to a source is kind of explain sort of who we are, you know? And I say, listen, everyone does this job differently. There are some reporters who do think that they are a kind of advocate, if not for the source themselves or the story the source is telling, for some of the sort of socio-political concerns that the source and, or their story represent. I let them know right up front that I'm not that kind of reporter, that I can't... I want to manage their expectations and let them know that I don't think that my work can really change anything. Even when it has sort of changed something, changed policy or changed law, I'm kind of surprised by it. You know, I want to manage their expectations and let them know that the only thing I can really do is to tell their story faithfully. And I find sources really do respond to that because a lot of the people I'm dealing with are not professionals. They're not seasoned PR pros. They're not politicians. They're regular people who have been sort of thrust into our profession's spotlight because something really horrible happened to them. So sometimes they're not even super sort of news media literate. And so you kind of, I feel like I have a responsibility to sort of midwife them through the process, manage their expectations, and promise only to tell the truth as they see it. I won't put this on you. I guess I'll just speak for myself. Mm -hmm. I try to also be very clear what the terms are, who I am and who I'm not, mm -hmm. what they should expect. And you know, you, what you find as with any source, not just crime stories, is that people really do need that explanation mm -hmm. and people really don't understand how we do our jobs or the differences between being on the record or on background or what you use and what you don't. And the fact that you are going to be getting the other side of the story and you are going to be telling other people that you were told this, what do you have to say about this? I give an expansive uh, explanation of my process and often I feel like one of those long terms of use forms <laughs> that people agree to without reading because they are there 
to have a story written or broadcast about them. And at that stage of the game, they're just, uh-huh, 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 sounds good to me. And then what often happens is I enter into a relationship in which they do come to talk to me like I am a friend or a therapist or an advocate. Mm-hmm. And then the story comes out and sometimes it's not what they expected and they feel terribly betrayed. I've had the same thing happen to me more than once. I think that the people who do want to tell their stories, they do often enthusiastically. People love to be heard. Almost no one likes to be written about. Even if it's done sort of (laughs) overweeningly flatteringly, they still find something to be sort of upset about. It's so disempowering for somebody else to tell your story. Absolutely. Even if they're glorifying you. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Even if it's done well with respect and even even often if it's flattering, there will be something like, well, no, 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 you got this wrong. I told you it was this way and not that way. When you were mentioning sort of the, you know, despite the disclaimer, you find yourself often in in a relationship where the source can treat you like a friend or like you're their advocate. And therapist. And therapist. Late night calls, working through emotional issues, especially people who are victims. Yeah, I find the same thing. And I allow myself to be available when I'm doing one of these stories pretty much day or night, you know? Um, Night is when sometimes you get the best quotes. That's it. I know. When you see that 1130 phone call come through, you're like, this could be very good. Back to your uh, reference to vultures. <laughs> I know, I know. But at the same time, I have three things to which I'm beholden. The source, something like the truth, but then also my readers, right? Like I, I kind of think that, you know, as a journalist, your audience is in many ways your first obligation because you're just sort of like a pane of glass between the truth that's out there, the people who are trying to tell it, and your audience. You know, I think one of the ways in which we get the really good stuff is by creating that intimacy, which is inevitable, right? Is it vampiric? Is it disingenuous? No, because I think that in many ways, even though you're not their friend or their therapist or their advocate or their priest or their lawyer, whatever, you know, two people talking about one of the most intimate, horrible things that can happen to someone, I think it has to involve something like care on the journalist's behalf. We like to think of ourselves as objective, dispassionate. But I think that when any journalism, especially crime journalism, is done well, it's because the journalist does end up caring. That doesn't mean that you are out to fix the source, to solve their problems, to clean their conscience, any of that stuff. But you do have to care about the fact that a very human thing has happened to someone, um, which is steeped in in the most profound emotions people can feel. And if you're not feeling it as a journalist, I don't think you're doing your job right. Yeah, no, I do. Th- I, I think you have to care. I mean, you have to care for your reader to care. Right, right. But caring, you know, when you, when you say you're beholden, it's an interesting phrase. And I think, mm. you know, especially when you're dealing with victims, like you, you do owe them something and, mm-hmm. and you owe them something beyond just that you're telling their story or you're telling the truth. Uh, you know, I think that you owe them a certain like duty of care. Mm-hmm. And yet, to be beholden to them and the truth is sort of like, I, I, I'm not sure that those are put on an equal level because, mm. I mean, one thing that I've learned is that every story that anybody casually tells you does not survive fact checking. <laughs> <laughs> Any story that people have been telling within a family for generations mm-hmm. is riddled with mm-hmm. four things have been turned into one thing or mm-hmm. something's been exaggerated. And so without calling anyone a liar, mm-hmm. you can hear from a victim and they are telling you, the most intimate things and you care about them Mm -hmm. and then you go and you verify. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
at best, there'll be some modification. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll catch them in something. Yeah. And if you are given a choice between being beholden to the truth and being beholden to the source. Got to side with the truth. <laughs> yeah. I think to make this specific, we're going to focus on one story that you've reported. True. And that is the murder of Dr. Elena Frick by her husband, Mohammed Shamji. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you to read something that you wrote about your reporting of that story. After her slaying, her friends, family, and colleagues bemoaned on social media that press coverage was framing the story as, quote, brilliant neurosurgeon murder's wife. By sliding into the narrative grooves a criminal lays down for the writer, the newspaper reporters made those grieving Frick feel like she was a secondary character in the story of her own demise. So I started reaching out to them with the promise that I'd do a different kind of story, one that centers the victim, makes her the main character, and foregrounds her life, mind, and decisions. I have been dubious about this notion of victim-centered crime reporting. Mm -hmm. At its worst, it has felt to me like a very specific and specifically biased form of biography Mm -hmm. where we're not going to glorify the killer or give them the attention they deserve, even if it's infamy. No, we're going to valorize the victim. Mm -hmm. And it's a biography that's written differently than any other biography. And a writer writing a biography is looking for conflict, is looking for a a complicated character. But at its worst, this kind of writing, victim-centered crime reporting, is lionizing. It's a hagiography where, Mm -hmm. and and the only reason you're writing this glowing uh, biography is because it ends with them getting murdered. Mm -hmm. And they've sort of earned this uh, very positive write up of their life because they mm-hmm. happen to get murdered. Mm-hmm. It's, it's always seemed like a strange exercise that's only being done in opposition to what people actually want to read. Yeah. I don't think you did that with this story. I think you succeeded in telling the story, not really just the story of the deceased, of the victim of Dr. Elena Frick, but really it's the story of this relationship. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And, you know, I, as I write in the, in the postscript to the story where I kind of talk about the process of reporting and, and the narrative gambit of it all, you know, I too, as I started reporting the piece and then writing it, I too was a little bit dubious of it. You know, I'm critical in the book about examples of other crime writers who have done it. And in fact, even of the judge in the Alec Manassian case said a similar thing in her judgment. She refused to name Manassian. Instead, she called him John Doe because Mm -hmm. she said it was his own haywire imaginings of fame that sort of led him to do what he did. Alec Manassian, of course, uh, the self-described incel who in 2018 drove a van onto the sidewalk in Toronto, killing 11 people. And... I disagree with the premise in many ways because, you know, having a crime story without a villain that, as you say, sort of makes a hagiography of the deceased is kind of like trying to remake meteorology without talking about the storms. Why are we pretending that this is anything other than it is? Of course. Of course. What I wanted instead, and I appreciate you saying that you didn't think I screwed it up too badly, was that I wanted to understand their marriage. Shamji wouldn't talk to us. But I wanted to understand Elena's mind, the decisions that she made 
and that um, were visited upon her from her perspective. And it's not because by being murdered, one turns into a saint or anything like that. It's more that, you know, I found this is in many ways the story of a marriage. And what I wanted to know was what were the dynamics that were happening inside the marriage and how Elena was allowed to be sort of isolated, how she was sort of removed from the other apparatuses of support that her friends and her family, the story she told about her marriage online, in public, and also to those closest to her in order to sort of see how a horrifyingly abusive relationship like this, how it sort of operates. So it was it was more a way of trying to take a look under the hood of this of a relationship than it was sort of making a saint out of um, out of her. You wrote that um, we write villains as main characters for a reason. They're the ones who make the consequential decisions. Mm-hmm. It's actually like. It's really hard to do what you did because it's easy to write about crime when you are writing about the decisions. Like, you know, in any story, right. action is great and somebody who who takes action. And then if they're a criminal, it's just interesting. Mm-hmm. The criminal woke up. What did he do next? Mm-hmm. You know, how did and, – and you know how it ends. It ends with them doing a terrible crime. So you're, you're invested and interested immediately. Mm-hmm. So how do you do the other thing? How do you, how do you write about the victim? And we've, we've kind of talked about the wrong way to – or kind of like I think a dull and maybe dishonest way to do it. The way you did it. It's more than the story of the relationship, and, and this is why I, I'm really focusing on it as a difficult thing to pull mm-hmm. off because uh, it's really the story of how this was able to happen, mm. and that's so close to – it's the story of her inaction mm. in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and the danger of writing a story about why she didn't leave, which she ultimately was doing. Mm-hmm could very easily become a story of victim blaming. That's what I was most scared of. Yeah. By trying to do, by trying the sort of narrative gambit where it's Elena who is the one who is making, we're seeing her decision-making process over and over. You know, it actually kept me up at night after the story came out was I was I was really scared that by trying to, by trying to sort of center her as the main character, you know, I was I was worried number one that that it would be misunderstood as the sort of hagiography you're talking about, but then I was worried about the opposite. I was worried that by making her the main character, I was kind of implicating her as the engine of her own demise, right? Right. Which is the it's the last thing anyone reporting on domestic violence, which in and of itself is very difficult to do. Um, I. I I was terrified of that. On the cover of Toronto Life, a photo of the smiling couple, it's hard not to read a story like that as, here's the story of how she got murdered. You know, chapter one, she was born. Right. (laughs) Which does, I guess, uh, suggest some level of, like, agency or here's her role in this happening. But I think what you emerged with is something that that did not overplay things in, in, in that direction. But there are little parts where the reader gets a hint of how she was failed in other ways. And, you you know, you remind us that prior to him killing her, he was charged. There were three criminal charges against him uh, in 2005, one of assault against Elena and two of uttering threats of bodily harm. But after those criminal charges, the couple reconciled. And, you know, Dr. Shamji, the celebrated neurosurgeon, he used his stature and his connections to get this all tossed as sort of like a little domestic squabble, you know, like why, why should this unfortunate event impede his ability to travel to the United States and to work there? And the charges were withdrawn and he entered into a peace bond and he agreed to 12 months probation. It was a bit of a slap on the wrist. That is a critical juncture where something different might have happened. Absolutely. And it's hard not to be a little bit upset with the crown in that moment. 
And my interest in crime reporting has always been not just in the sort of anecdotal fact of the crime itself, that, that you know, this person killed that person, isn't that strange and bad. It's really how these imperfect people sort of navigate and are navigated by the sort of larger systems in which they work, you know, socioeconomic, jurisprudential. So when we see the crown being so close to avoiding sort of intervening um, before things go horribly wrong and and it's too late, it, it takes the context of of Elena's thinking about her own relationship in order to understand how the crown failed her. And if we don't understand the way Elena thinks, we don't understand how the criminal justice system fails a woman in that moment. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Returning to your process and the relationships that you had to enter into to tell the story, I'm going to ask you to read again uh, something that you wrote. Sure. Joe and Anna and I would spend hours across weeks talking about Alana at the kitchen table. When we spoke about her early life, the miracle that she had been born at all, her precocious, prodigious girlhood, her resolve and her accomplishments, they would smile and laugh as if the vital part of her were sequestered somewhere beyond what Shamji had done to her. They gave me the only copy of the book of poems she'd written as a girl in high school, showed me her painting of those lovers dancing, the woman's back to us, the man's face left undrawn. When they cried, I couldn't help but reach out and grab their hands. And on one of my last visits to their house, I walked into the kitchen where the boy was deep in play and Anna, in a kind but commanding tone, said to him, come and say hello to Uncle Michael. Uncle Michael, I can't unhear those words, can't unring that bell. 
And this is when I started having real trouble sleeping, once I had everything I needed. Not only did I worry I'd gotten too close to the story emotionally, but now I worried, as I sat down to write it, how to protect it and everyone who trusted me from legal chicanery. But I knew something that I hadn't dared report, that their eldest daughter had been the only witness to their mother's murder, and Shamji's conviction would turn on her testimony. I'd console myself that I'd immunized the Crown's case against my reporting because I hadn't spoken to that daughter or published the fact that I knew what she knew. But the fact that she was in Windsor prepared to send her father to prison for life deepened my insomnia. Holy shit. <laughs> Let's take that apart a little bit here. Mm-hmm. You found out that this poor little girl... How old was she at the time that this happened? I think she was uh, 13 or 14. Oh, when she was 13 or 14, she she listened to her father murder her mother. Yeah. And you got close enough with her grandparents and even siblings that one of her siblings called you Uncle Michael. Mm-hmm. But you intentionally did not interview her Yeah. because if you did that could compromise the case against the murderer. Yeah. Typically, we are not supposed to involve ourselves with legal outcomes. Mm -hmm. We are supposed to seek out witnesses who have firsthand knowledge. Mm -hmm. If you're reporting on a murder, the firsthand witness of the murder, that's somebody that the journalist wants to talk to. Yep. You're going to get the best information possible from the witness. Yep. To even... Concern yourself with the legal process mm-hmm. by the book would be to concern yourself with the outcome, mm-hmm. which we're not supposed to get involved with or care mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we're human beings. Yeah. And the idea that in getting this great stuff for your story, and maybe you're in a better position than me, I think I, I would stumble through it, but how would you fuck up the court case by talking to this girl? Well, let's say this. Let's say I interviewed her in the ideal way you want to interview someone like that, like a first-hand witness on the record. Let's say I did, right? And, you know, I write, their eldest daughter heard her mother screaming at around 2 o'clock in the morning, and then a thud, and then, you know, she walked through the door and saw her father on the other side of the bed, and she could tell her mother was there, blah, blah, blah. Or describe the scene. Then what a defense attorney could do is say, walk up to her on the witness stand, brandishing a copy of Toronto Life and say, here in Toronto Life, sorry, what time was it when you, oh, sorry, was it 204 or 206? Um, sorry, where was your father standing? You testified 20 minutes ago that he was standing over here, but in the article right here, you say he was standing over there. So which, you know, you're getting your facts wrong. How can we believe anything you're saying, right? I mean, it's a, it's a classic sort of defense attorney tactic. I couldn't in good conscience, knowing that, that the daughter would have to be and was prepared to take the stand to send her father to prison. I just, I, I call me a bad journalist, but I could not put that family, that young woman in that situation for for the truth, for a little bit more accurate description of what happened that night. I I, it, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. And I, and I don't know if, if our reader's interest is served. I don't know if the gambit of it is worth it. If our readers know a little bit more before the case about the actual murder, few more details if it's if it's worth the potential human suffering that that getting those details would precipitate. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what do you know what like what do you think, Jesse? Like do you think is is Oh, it's a cl- I mean, it's not a very difficult decision. Right. right. Uh 
I don't mean to make it sound like it is. Yeah. If there was a question as to his guilt, mm-hmm. you know, at this point he had mm-hmm. pled guilty. He hadn't pled when oh. by the time we came out with the story. So so Elena was murdered on December first, twenty sixteen, and our story came out four months later. But okay. he didn't plead guilty um, until years later. Right, 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 right. I guess what I mean is like. This was not the kind of crime reporting where you were trying to figure out who did it. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. You know, if that was the exercise, like like we do this kind of like rough first draft of what official processes do later or what hopefully the police are doing, you know, this was not that kind of a crime story. No. I think you would have had a much more difficult decision if you're like, well, I don't want to speak to the witness to this murder mm-hmm. because if in fact it was her father mm-hmm. and ultimately there's this court process, then et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I think that would have complicated it and you'd you'd have a real like one for the journalism ethics class. Right. I think in this case, you know, you'd have to be a real son of a bitch <laughs> to to pursue that interview. I agree. It is interesting as a good example of like when we have to just check ourselves and understand that there are more important things than the public's right to know. You know, in this case, the victim's right to justice. Yeah. Um, was more important. And, I, and I, you know, and you're taking ownership of something which is a big part of this too, which is like, we have to live with ourselves. Yeah. You write about this too in a way that was really uh, moving for me. I have in my, you know, photo role as my kids grow up, weird little snippets interrupting the story of their childhoods. Mm-hmm. I don't cover stuff as intense as you, uh, but I've covered some pretty serious crime from time to time. Mm-hmm. And then just a bunch of weird media stuff. <laughs> And interspersed with, uh, I guess, any reporter's memories of their own lives and their own children are screenshots and photos of people we cover, little bits of evidence, little things to remind ourselves. And if you don't have really good practices around putting those in different folders and getting them away, (laughs) well, here's how you put it. As I investigated the crime, her friends and family sent the pictures to me so I could better understand who she'd been and an algorithm somewhere clocked their digital SAMP and sent them back through time, filing them chronologically into the carousel of my own life, retroactively braiding her memories with mine between my day at the beach and my night at the bar. She and Shamji still appear in those montages set to music that the photo app puts together unbidden, shuffled into my hand like an errant pair of cards from a foreign deck, as if some computer program has an insight into what I can barely dare admit, that in some indelible way, our lives are forever stitched together. So just to be clear about what happened, mm-hmm. you had on your phone a bunch of pictures of both the murderer and his victim, mm-hmm. like kind of like family pictures of them smiling, posing together, things that you had collected or had been sent to you. Yep. And that got mixed in with your own photos. Yeah. And then when like when the photo app does its little memories together, mm-hmm. we've created you a digital montage yeah. and they play a little canned music. You, you, you saw them mixed in with the people who you're closest to in your life. I think it was called, I think the montage was called like fun with friends. No, really? It was something like that. Oh my God. And it was, you know, me and my buddies, you know, my sister and my, my little nieces. And then there was a picture of Elena out with her friends eating pizza close to a year before she was murdered. I know the pizza joint, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. There are pictures of me in that pizza joint, like, you know, at another time. And she's smiling. And when I saw it, I was just like, oh, good God. Like, no. And then, you know, and then it was another picture of, you know, of us like swimming in a lake up north or something like that. And I just, uh, again, it was, 
shocking. That's fucking heavy. Like, because it's true. It's a mistake for the algorithm, just, you know, these little, you know, memories together. Mm -hmm. And then there's some canned music and it can't help but get to you because it's using pictures of your own life. Mm -hmm. But then for not just the victim, but the murderer, smiling pictures of these people. Mm -hmm. So that's a mistake. Those aren't your loved ones. That's not your life. No. But like, isn't it? <sighs> like how, who are you more intimate with? You know, probably not a long list of people. No, no. I mean, Sometimes I worry I'm too sentimental about this stuff. That 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 it's that it's almost inappropriate to 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 feel like I care as much about the people I talk to and write about as much as I do. But call me a softie. You know, this story was one of the fastest ones I ever did. It was it was about three months, and we were talking to. I, I think the number is somewhere between 40 and 50 sources who were like, you know, the closest people to uh, Elena and, and Mo. And, you know, each one I would talk to for at least on average, like I would say, f- you know, five or six hours, right? Some of them like Joe and Anna, I mean, we talked for dozens upon dozens of hours. Do you know what I mean? To the point where they thought it was appropriate for Elena and Mo's son to call me Uncle Michael. You know what I mean? I would be, if I didn't, sort of let myself be affected by by the people I write about, I would never have, you know, gotten to the point where I could get the story in the way I did, I think. Because, you know, by making myself available to them, you know, you have to be, you have to be like data from Star Trek, you know what I mean? Or, or you know, a Vulcan, not to care, you know? And it does affect me. I mean, you chopper into these people's lives, you spend huge amounts of time with them, you obsess over getting the story right. And then you kind of vanish. But all of these people in one way or another have kind of wounded me. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I think you have to care in order to do this job right. And what about the murderer? So (laughs) there was a review of the book in the Toronto Star. And the reviewer said, I'm too soft on the criminals. And in some ways, I mean, in some ways I don't think that's true. In In others, I kind of do. I mean, I do, you know... People who do really horrible things, it's so easy as a reader to be filled with like a like a holy hatred for them. Do you know what I mean? It's also boring writing. I agree. It's bad writing. Like I agree. It's bad writing if they're just bad, bad, bad. And right. it's it's also bad writing if if it's you know what um the judge did in their ruling, or you know, I, I had a guest who's a gun advocate who was, you know, how do we what do we do about these mass murderers? And he said, Well, there should be a law that you can't publish their names. Right. You know, so I was like, that's bad journalism. um, But, you know, the idea is like, uh, we're not going to give them what they want. Mm -hmm. They're just evil. Fuck them. They who shall not be named. Mm -hmm. You wrote, I I remain unconvinced that I or my readers are best served by a narrative tactic that ultimately fails to inhabit the inconvenient humanity of criminals. You write criminals as humans in the way that people have been writing about crime for a long time. I mean, If there's any contradiction here, any place I want to push back on you, it's it's mm-hmm. um, it's a little bit too pat. The explanation you gave earlier, we write villains as main characters for a reason. They're the ones who make the most consequential decisions. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who make the consequential decisions. Mm-hmm. That's true enough. Mm-hmm. But we also write them because they're interesting. Yeah, of, right? co- of course. The villains are the villains in any story are almost always more interesting. Of course, because first of all, they're rare, right? I mean, like someone who does something truly horrible is is by definition sort of 
exceptional, right? I mean, not in a good way, but if you're looking at the sort of data set of humanity, there's this really small subset who are doing this sort of exotic thing. Right. Outliers right. Are, are interesting. Right. Uh, surprises right. are interesting. And extremes are, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, mm -hmm. and that's true whether it's just the news. The news mm -hmm. is not what happened today. It's the weird shit that happened mm -hmm. today. Stuff that wasn't supposed to happen today. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's also true of, you know, whatever, literary nonfiction. Right. Like, what are you going to spend the time like, and we're talking months mm -hmm. uh, or, and sometimes years delving into a crime. You know, it was interesting. Like I was listening to James Gandolfini talk about the Sopranos mm -hmm. and it's so interesting in this age where we're so interested in true crime. Mm -hmm. That's not true crime, but it's, you know, mm -hmm. close enough. Yeah. It's based yeah. on the truth. <laughs> like the best true crime or crime fiction, I suppose, isn't really about crime. Right. Like, and he was talking about The Sopranos, like, look, look, this isn't, you know, this show is about family and it's about <laughs> generational dynamics. It's about society. It's about friendship. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's, and then at the end, <laughs> Spoken goes, like a gangster. <laughs> and he's totally right. He's totally right. And I yeah. suppose like there's no shortage of literature out there that's like, you know, three generations of a normal family. And there's tons of interesting stuff you can get into, but it helps if somebody killed somebody, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and that's what he's like, it's all that stuff. Yeah. Plus, you got the mafia stuff, which, <laughs> right. which makes it a TV show. Right. Yeah. Like, you offer a complicated and interesting human portrait of this doctor who is somebody who you feel like you know at the end of writing it. And and uh, that's sort of what makes it so, you know, wow, this could happen to. But Toronto Life doesn't write cover stories of like, like here's an interesting Torontonian, you know? <laughs> Let's do an, uh, like a 5,000-word obit of somebody who, right. who died in their sleep. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. The question I always come back to is, especially in the in this sort of true crime boom moment that we're sort of living through, is, is it bad to be interested in criminals because they're criminals, right? Like, is there something that's kind of, there, there is like a sort of finger-wagging sort of moralism from some crowds. You, you know the type, right? And, and from you. And we all do it. Right. Like, we, we kind of enjoy doing it. We're like, we're ghouls. Right. We're a bunch of vultures. Right. You know, like, like, you said that you're proud of the story in the shameful way right. that writers of true crime can be proud of yeah. a work that is based on somebody else's misery. Right. But we're not really shamed. Well, no. I mean, but it does make you a bit of an asshole if you're walking around being like, God damn, that's my best work. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, so honest. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. You know, true crime is, I think, interesting as a genre, not just to consume, but to think about, because it is this combination of all these things at once. It is, as I say, like, you know, when I was doing, doing my first murder, you know, I, I had this moment when I realized it was wickedly fun. You know what I mean? It was delightful fun. I mean, it was great. You know what I mean? When you write a Toronto Life crime cover story, you know, it's in every single, you know, dentist's office in Toronto, right? Your mom's friend, your your grandma's knitting partner, like they're all they're all reading it, right? Everyone is consuming it. And I don't think there's anything immoral about the genre if you do it kind of morally. Do you know what I mean? Which isn't like which isn't in in some I'm not one of those like sort of hair shirt wearing true crime writers where, you know, I, I'm sort of wallowing in abjection or anything like that. But it is, it does contain, it does contain these competing impulses where it's like, I am taking someone's pain, digesting it and turning it into something that's somewhere between elucidating and titillating, right? And I think it's okay to have those competing feelings. You don't have to have one or the other, right? Yeah. You know, I, I've known crime reporters who take it head on and, and sort of wear it in a like, yeah, I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> and I think there's a certain attempt at honesty in that. Right. You know, I guess the worst kind is the kind that like thinks that they are doing God's work. Right. 
Maybe the only real ethical way to do it is to wrestle with it and to be uncertain about it. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too because I, you know, I think your attitude about the genre comes out in every single sentence you write. Do you know what I mean? And if you are kind of like the swashbuckling, hard drinking, cigarette smoking piece of shit, like it, it kind of comes across, right? If you are the hair shirt wearing, like sort of abject, self hating crime writer, that's going to come across too. In some ways, I think it does the sources. And if you delude reader. yourself, if if you kid yourself into thinking that you're just representing victims, right, and telling the, you know, if if you if you kid yourself, right. That it's purely a noble act, right? That's that's a lie too. Oh, God. That there, there's no level of exp- like you you can't get around that there is exploitation. Of course, you're turning it into content. Of course, and you're getting paid for it, and and you're get, you're going to get a lot of you know eardrums and eyeballs paying attention to it, right? So for me, like being able to strike that balance between self congratulation and, and self hatred um, is, I th- I think that's I think that's the one that's not just the sort of best moral position. I think it's actually good for your work as a journalist, right? Why do people need to know about crime? Like, there is prurience and titillation. Yeah. There is a porn aspect to it. Is it just that? And is that, like, to kind of get back to what we were saying earlier, you can basically sell a story that's a piece of literature if the character dies at the end in, in, a, in a grisly crime. And... I don't judge. There's no shortage of, you know, you got to put asses in seats and many of the issues-based journalism that we, you know, strive for and, and, you know, submit to awards needs something titillating or interesting just to get somebody there. So you could kind of look at the crime as like, well, like the, the James Gandolfini thing of like the mafia is what got the audience, but it's really not about that. Right. But there's another way of, it, of looking at it, which is that, I don't know, do, do people need to know about crime – because crime tells us something. Mm. There's a, I don't know if it was, I, I don't want to be quoting Robert Kennedy, but I might be. There's also, it was also <laughs> said by Val McDermott, who's a Scottish crime writer. Um, they both said that a society gets the criminals it deserves. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I do think there is a way in which certain kinds of crime are a sort of emanation of the society in which it happens, right? That's true, for example, like, you know, when it comes to something like gun violence in America, right? I mean, by understanding— Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein, right? I mean, the thing that I think is, if there is an issue in Love Story, you know, I think the the, the most important one is that the reason why those initial headlines were written the way they were, brilliant neurosurgeon murders wife— is because there is a class element to this story, and that's important for us to understand about domestic violence, right? Like, domestic violence is completely blind to class, and yet we, I think undergirding the interest in the story is this sense that, oh, that there's a certain kind of crime that only affects a certain class, right? Like, how could a brilliant neurosurgeon beat up his wife for, you know, 15 years and then kill her? Right. It seems he's too respectable. They're too rich. Right. And I think that belies a silly and classist understanding of a societal ill that cuts through class, creed and, you know, can affect everybody. That's what makes it surprising. Right. That's the way in which it's a reflection of our of sort of the preconceptions of our society. Right. Our surprise that this happened between these two white collar professionals and and not in a trailer park. Exactly. Says something about us. Yeah. The way in which it happened between them, well, there's another story that you didn't have access to write about who this guy was and how mm-hmm. he was brought up. And mm-hmm. 
how he was capable of that. Mm-hmm. You know, we touch on it a little bit and, you know, we sort of, we, we talk about his austere, prestigious upbringing that, that he had, which I think led to a sense of kind of entitlement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that fed into the way that he behaved in his marriage. Um, it's inferred around the edges, you know, the biography right. that you're able to offer about him, you can fill in the blanks of right. like, Overachiever, striver, uh, yeah. born kind of elite. Mm-hmm. Way he treated her, you know, you can you can kind of infer, and I don't think that's anything manipulative on your part because you didn't have access to him, and you lay out the facts as they are, and they, and they, you know they tell a story. Mm-hmm. It's interesting though. Like I always wonder, like yeah, that that suggests to me something, and I kind of just know that if you actually were able to go, mm-hmm. it would be different. Yeah, it might be inclusive of that. Yeah. It's almost never just the thing you think it's going to be. The other reason I think that crime reporting is interesting to us and also in its own way, I don't want to, maybe important is the wrong word, but but the reason why it's still relevant, right, is because there is a way in which even when you do get really good access to a criminal or the family of a criminal or the people around them, there is a way in which however much reporting you can do about why the person became the way they are, very often you'll find there's something very mysterious and inexplicable and almost unreportable about it. Right? Yeah. Like it doesn't like it, you know, you can, you can, you can get as much of that stuff as you want and it still kind of feels like it doesn't add up. There's something that's mysterious and missing. That I think is the thing that fascinates not just me, but I think consumers of true crime because it's like, why did this one break bad? Right. Why, what, what is that odd thing? You know, as a kid, I was kind of a hypochondriac and I was always worried about my appendix bursting. Right. And my interest in, in it was always something sort of like that. Like I was like, there is this old desiccated organ inside all of us that for some reason in some people just erupts. Do you know what I mean? And it almost feels like this is where I get the sympathy of criminals from because it's almost like there is a way in which, of course, of course they're culpable for it. Of course, they should, you know, they should have to pay for their crimes. But there is a way in which they kind of look like the evil is riding them and not the other way around. Do you know what I mean? I think I do. That's sort of one lens through which you can look at it is like, What's broken in people that allows them to go to these extremes? Mm-hmm. I guess there's a nihilistic way of looking at like bullshit. No, nothing has to be broken. Anybody will do this stuff under the right circumstances. Right. I guess what draws me to us to one story and not the other, and I cover different stories than you, but I take notice when there's a big crime and, and mm-hmm. you know it's going to be a big story. There's a lot of interest. And there is a process, whether I'm reporting or assigning people to things, where, you know, it's like story selection. Mm-hmm. You know, does this mean anything or is it just another murder? Yeah. And I'm not going to suggest that my instincts are terribly good. Some of it's a matter of personal taste. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But when Barry and Honey Sherman got murdered, I was like, pass. I felt the same way. There was a second in which I was kind of like, do I have to do this one? And I'm kind of like, I know this sounds, you know, every life is valuable. But to me as a reporter, um, it was, and this is is the crime stories that I don't want to do. I don't want them to feel merely anecdotal. Do you know what I mean? Like there has to be something, it has to be a way in which the crime tells us something about ourselves, the systems in which we live, our preconceptions about why crime happens and to whom. Do you know what I mean? Like it has to, it has to have some sort of surplus value than it's mere newsiness. I do know what you mean. And it's, it's a really hard one to talk about because we don't know who killed them, but like you kind of run this ghoulish math, this algorithm in your head and you're like, Mm -hmm. look, I don't know. It was, it was a business thing Mm -hmm. or it was a family thing. Mm -hmm. Like they kind of like run the different outcomes, not Mm -hmm. knowing. And like, Mm -hmm. are any of those things 
about anything. Right. And I kind of was like, I, I don't see a there there. Yeah. You know? I know. Good chance that we'll never know. And even if you do find out, good chance it's like, yeah, like somebody hired killers because of a business thing or or he had a rel like mm-hmm. it, something like that. And I'm just like, oh, that, that you know, and knowing the investment that's required, mm-hmm. you make these judgment calls. Yep. Part of the reason I didn't want to do the Sherman story, I had a friend of mine who's also a crime writer at one of the big dailies, and she was put on it briefly. And then she said, you know, essentially she was like, you know what, I don't want to do this story. There's no way we're going to figure this out. This was like months after, months after, like, you know, the the murder happened. She was like, "There's, we're never going to know. And it's not, it's kind of not worth the not knowing. I have done a story where we don't know who killed the person, but the reason I did it was because it was the story about the murder of Beverly Smith. And uh, the reason I did it was because the police in their attempt to figure out who did it, they deployed this Mr. Big investigation. Which, oh, yeah, right. Which is like, That's you know, fascinating. uniquely yeah. Canadian. No, unsolved can be okay. You yeah. Know? I mean, the the, the, yeah. the indigenous deaths in Thunder right. Bay were, of course. Are, are remain unsolved. But yeah. my, my God, the things that are revealed. Yeah. Uh, but there's got to be something. There's got to be something to chew on. Again, I think it has to tell us something about who we as a people are, who we as a society are. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't, you know, I'll let somebody else do it. Has anything changed in how you approach this stuff? The next time you are like talking to a, to a survivor of a murder victim, is it different than the first time? You know, I think everyone's bedside manner can always be a little bit better. I think I'm more confident now having sort of gone through it a bunch. Murders are, it's weird. Uh, uh, again, maybe I'm sort of like a softy, but I, I find that like, you know, murders can creep up on you emotionally. Do you know what I mean? Especially at the beginning, it takes a lot of, uh, you know, sort of emotional fortitude to, to not just do it right, but to kind of be able to live with it. Now I kind of feel like, you know, it's not like I'm grizzled or anything, but I think I'm more, I'm better equipped to be able to sort of dive into the dark with with people who are grieving and and do it without being without being sort of swallowed up by it in the way I had in the past. And I think that makes us better reporters because... You want to care, but you don't want to get you don't want to get overwhelmed because then you're not doing your your sources good. You're not doing your reader service or any favors for your own health and well being. Yeah, yeah. As much as we can talk about how sources lose sight of the line between a journalist and a friend or a shrink or yeah. an advocate. Yeah, you know we can get lost too. Absolutely, absolutely. And the ability to get lost, I think, makes us good. But you don't want to succumb to it. You don't want to actually get lost, right? You want to make yourself sort of available enough that you're doing the story justice without, without bringing, you know, bringing harm to yourself. Michael, this has been really interesting. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me. That is your Canada Land. If you value this podcast, if you value anything we put out from this network, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows, ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You will get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. More than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Additional production and editing from Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. 
I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will let me serve in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.